With record snowfall in Portland last week, winter weather has finally arrived, and just in time for Portland Youth Philharmonic's annual winter concert. Dating back to 1924, PYP is the oldest continuously operating youth orchestra in the country, and their music has helped us get through quite a few winters. They'll be doing it again in their 99th season, with a performance this Saturday, March 4th, at Portland's Arlene Schnitzer Concert Hall. The program includes the U.S. premiere of Ruth Gipp's Symphony No. 3, the world premiere of a piece by Jeff Scott in collaboration with the PYP musicians, and Frank Proto's A Carmen Fantasy for Double Bass and Orchestra, featuring 2022 Concerto Competition winner Maggie Carter. We're fortunate, as always, to have PYP's musical director, David Hatner, here to give us a preview. David, welcome back. Good to be here, Ken. David, we've come to expect a mix of the old and the new in PYP's concerts, and I always enjoy discovering the newer and often lesser-known music on the program, but the spring lineup might be one of your most adventurous, which is why I'd like to get right to the works themselves. Let's start with the premiere of Ruth Gipps' Symphony Number no. 3. What attracted you to Gipps and her work? Well, I heard some chatter about this composer sometime late in the quarantine, or maybe just after we had started uh, last season, uh, one of our alumni pl plays in an orchestra that was doing some of her music, and she offered me a ticket to the live stream version. And I was very impressed. They played her uh, second symphony, which was written considerably before this third symphony. She was still a very young composer at that time. And I, I just thought the work was spectacular, and uh, I really enjoyed it. And so I did a little homework and discovered that she has written five symphonies and a lot of chamber music, some of which is for my instrument, the clarinet, because her husband was a clarinetist. So I played her clarinet rhapsody and programmed the symphony number no. three, learning that it was almost certainly going to be the USA premiere. The second and fourth had already been played in the States and uh, got to work seeing what was in there. And I've been very impressed with it the whole way. Uh, she's what you might call a traditional composer for the 1960s. She rejected the 12-tone uh, system of composition as unnecessary and unlovable, and uh, was really very vehement about it, um, which uh, caused her no end of trouble with the people who considered it uh, the only way to compose music by that time. Uh, but over time, she's been proven right this uh, direct, I was called post-romantic, uh, post-impressionist style of hers. She studied with Ray Vaughan Williams and, and some of her music is stylistically perhaps uh, close to his. Uh, she's really an expert, uh, writes brilliantly for the instruments, scores uh, balance really well for the orchestra. And she uses uh, the traditional symphonic form in a, um, a way that's very satisfying. So I think it's a major premiere. Uh, I think anyone who um, enjoys uh, symphonic music will be um, amazed that they, they do not know this name after hearing this masterful work of hers. And clearly uh, Symphony Number no. 3, since you said it might be a US premiere, was never played by PYP. But has PYP in its 99-year history ever played a piece by Ruth Gipps? No, I don't think in most of our 99 years, any American orchestras ever played a note of Ruth Gipps music, even in England. It was it was hardly heard in her lifetime, something that she uh, 
herself lamented uh, regularly. She was also a fine conductor, although because because of uh, her being a woman, her conducting was relegated to amateur and student orchestras almost exclusively. So uh, she she never realized the fullest of her dreams. But today, her works are being recorded by the Shandos records label so there are two or three discs into their survey at this point and the third symphony was on their most recent release uh just a couple of months ago so you can you can hear this symphony if you want before the uh before you buy the ticket and see is is it really is it really so good and i think you'll you'll agree that it is or just show up and and be surprised pleasantly surprised (laughs) as I, i usually am always a good way you know we don't we don't go out of our way to present a concert of three unusual pieces. I sort of thought that as often happens that the winner of the concerto competition would play a famous repertory piece, but it did not turn out to be the case this year. Yeah, I want to ask you about that. But first, I did want to uh, let listeners know that you and PYP actually have championed women composers in past seasons. So this is no surprise to have Ruth Gipps in concert. Uh, most recently, last May, with Polina Nazikinskaya, uh, Symphony Number no. One, April Song, in past seasons, and I've talked to you about it. You've featured other women composers like Lyra Auerbach, uh, Amy Beach. Do you see things improving at all for women composers in terms of getting their work played? Absolutely. It it has been one of the great revelations of the last ten years that not only, as we already knew, that there were fine, living, active women composers contributing to the repertoire, but people start to look backwards at composers who were really just names on lists and names in books and actually look at the music they wrote and discovering that uh, that a lot of it is really excellent and better than things that have remained in the sides of the repertoire. I think one of the problems with orchestral programming has been the idea of doing cycles of compositions, doing all of the symphonies by this composer and that composer. And inevitably, with with some of those composers, there will be lesser works amongst the cycle, but you, but you want to do them all. Right? <laughs> it's like collecting things. So instead of making room for uh, composers like Ruth Gipps, like Amy Beach, and uh, Louise Ferranc is another um, older composer whose whose works I've conducted, they'll be wanting to do like the obscure Tchaikovsky symphonies and uh, things like that, uh, just so you can say you did them all. Now it's really important for us to make up for the, the oversights of our predecessors and reclaim these works by women, by composers who are not European and so forth and uh, actually play and record them so that people can hear them and then they can judge for themselves but our musicians at PYP are very good judges because they uh they don't have a lot of preconceived notions about what is supposed to be uh great except in the case of a a few very distinguished names like uh, Beethoven whose music we're going to play of course starting, starting <laughs> next week they they know that he's great but when we been playing Ruth Gipps, uh, they have the same ultimate reaction to it that they have to any other intrinsically great piece. They don't have any feelings like, oh, this is great, but we really should be playing Tchaikovsky or Bartok or somebody else because that's important. It's, it's 
it, it doesn't matter anymore. We're trying to let everyone know the, that this uh, idea that concerts aren't only written by dead white <laughs> Europe. Um, this has actually been going on a long time. It's just the doors are are open and judgment is it's it's an interesting thing when you start to think of it in a, a different way. You know, often we it's like if a composer fell by the wayside, there's the only reason to revive it is if you're convinced that their works are better than the best works by the best composers, which is not really fair because that's not all we play. We often play secondary works by almost great composers all the all the time. And they they merely need to be as good as as those, if not better. And and Ruth Gipps uh, shows herself to be every bit as good as some of the the best composers, particularly when you talk about English composers of symphonies. Uh, she she may be the most consistently good one they have, because uh, although there are a lot of English symphonies, there are very few English symphony composers who are only good ones. And uh, the second piece we'll talk about, you uh, mentioned it, another surprising one. Uh, this is Frank Proto's A Carmen Fantasy for Double Bass and Orchestra. That features an amazing young musician, uh, 16-year-old Maggie Carter. She won last year's PYP Concerto Competition. Now, I know I've talked to you in the past about previous competition winners, David. It's usually a pianist or a violinist. So it, it's pretty rare for someone who plays the double bass, isn't it? Yes, we had a soloist on the double bass once before in my time and and maybe only once or twice in the whole history before that. So it it is uh it is un, unusual and uh at, you know at the time the orchestra was founded this piece obviously was not written it's only about 30 some years old. But Maggie Carter is a exceptionally able musician and performer and very talented. And she really plays this piece uh, almost unlike any anyone who's played it before. So I, <laughs> she's been playing, I think, since she was 12. Uh, and now being 16, it's, uh, it's she's had a lot of percentage of her life devoted to playing it. So I think this would be the way to hear this piece. Well, you had a role in that, too. I, uh, there was a very good Oregonian article recently on the concert. Apparently, Maggie was uh, attracted to the bass when she was just four years old. She was... Uh, at a farmer's market, a local farmer's market, and she heard a bass player playing uh, some jazz, uh, I guess, passing the hat. And uh, she got inspired to start lessons, which is through a free PYP class, I think taught by actual or Oregon Symphony bass players. Yes, there have been quite a few different members of the Oregon Symphony through the bass class uh, over the years because they, they keep winning jobs in bigger orchestras. <laughs> they have to get new teachers all the time, but they've, they've been wonderful. And... Uh, the the last soloist on bass we had also studied in that bass class in its first year and uh, maggie must have come along about four or five years after that and yes she has had a remarkable trajectory as a student and she has a bright future ahead of her as a performer and i've also read that in the concert notes that the carmen fantasy uh, was written for a great French double bass player, Francois Rabat. Mm -hmm. uh, so it must be quite a challenge, not just for Maggie, but for you as a musical director and uh, for the uh, young musicians in the orchestra. Especially true because the piece was written for bass and piano and uh, conceived to be a, a sort of free fantasy and only later adapted for the orchestra. And it's a challenge to assemble it uh, because, you know, bass and piano, it's intimate. 
Uh, you can rehearse for hours and hours if there's something that's difficult to put together. And with orchestra, it's it it's it's been a challenge. the 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 piece is difficult for the orchestra, and of course, balancing with an instrument like the double bass is tricky. We'll have a little amplification at the hall on Saturday that will assist, but. Uh, especially with the snow wiping out our last rehearsal of the piece last Saturday. It's been a challenge, but we we played it last night uh, in Vancouver as a little tryout and I thought it was very successful. So I think we've, we've had a good, a good effective series of rehearsals on it. And the third work on the program is another premiere. This is a world premiere, not just a USA premiere by Jeff Scott. Uh, he's an associate professor of French horn at Opaline College, a very difficult instrument as far as I, I, I know. And the piece is credited to Scott, but apparently as part of a larger collaboration with your musicians. Can you talk about that collaboration, David, and how the work came together, that process? Yes, I've known Jeff a long time. Uh, we, we were in New York together, and I remember when the Imani Wind Quintet, which is well known to P Portland's classical music, loving population through their many visits to the Chamber of Music Northwest Festival. Uh, he left the quintet to teach at Oberlin, as you said, and has also been building a significant career as a composer. During the, uh, the year when we were all online, he wrote a work for our horns called Circle Dance, which was a delightful piece that everyone was uh, uh, happy with. So we thought for our 100th anniversary series of commissions, it would be great for Jeff to write something for the orchestra. And uh, so he's contributed this work uh, in five movements that he decided to leave the title page blank and <laughs> leave it to the musicians of the orchestra to play it and rehearse it and listen to it and really like think what what's going on in this piece and, and title it and title each of the movements as well. Yeah, I actually read uh, what what the title is. Oh, uh, I'm glad you have have that there. Yeah. Uh, did you want to go ahead and give them, uh, well, or, sure. or do you want to wait for the uh, actual the concert? Oh, no, no, on no, no. We, okay. can, we can tell our, the listeners what they're going to hear. So the the work title is the journey, uh, which is perfect because uh, Jeff sort of described the piece to them as a like a movie score without film, and it does sound a lot like a movie score. So the First movement is called The Awakening. It's a rather dramatic, uh, dynamic movement where um, it's it sounds like the uh, the title credits for an old horror movie. <laughs> it starts rather eerily and builds up to a very smashing climax a couple of times that's dissonant and, uh, you know, just uh, like there's flashing um, titles on the screen, warning everyone that they will be scared throughout it. <laughs> the second movement is titled Fool's March, Dance of the Jesters. It's a very sarcastic march for orchestra, I would say. Um, let's see what the third one is called. Falling Serenade. Falling Serenade, that has to do with some of the musical gestures that occur a couple points in this that sound like somebody falling down a flight of stairs suddenly and landing with a, a thud. Um, so I was very impressed with that. Uh, the fourth movement, which is scored only for the strings, has been titled Depression. And it, it does have uh, like a lament, funereal quality about it. And the last movement is called Heroic Return, which is especially apt because uh, it, it brings back some of the uh, musical ideas from earlier in the piece. 
but in a, a triumphant and really non-ironic, uh, joyous way. I just wanted to to mention, I, I read a little bit about Jeff Scott. He, he said that he grew up listening to a variety of music, not just classical, uh, blues, jazz, soul, gospel. And early on uh, in his uh, playing, uh, when he took up the instrument, he told his mother he wanted to be the Michael Jackson of French horn because that was the music he loved. And then he said, but when it came to playing in band and youth symphony, the music that I loved never reached that stage. And I always wanted more autonomy to sing the soundtrack of my life. So I think uh, through the collaboration, he was trying to give your musicians that autonomy that he may be never had and never experienced. Absolutely. He, he had asked them uh, what music they enjoyed listening to. So we sent them that list and, you know, he sort of used that to, just to understand where, where our musicians are when they, when they're choosing their own playlist. Now I have one question that's not about the, the uh, program itself, the concert, given that the Oscars, the Academy Awards, it's just a week away. I saw uh, one of the uh, contenders for best picture tar. When I was watching, I said, I got to ask David about that. Uh, it's about a fictional conductor, Lydia Tarr. And I was wondering what you thought of the film, because it depicts the life of a conductor and preparing for and performing a, a concert. Well, I think having seen it, first of all, aside from the fact that it's much too long, and there, <laughs> there's, there's more than a half hour that is completely unnecessary. To I that. saw it in two installments. I cheated. <laughs> I feel like the entire film is not very much about music or about conductors or any any of that. I think all of that is a metaphor, uh, although they did an impressive amount of research to get all the jargon really close to correct and to, you know, teach her a little bit about what conducting looks like and to have an actual orchestra and, and, and all, all that's very interesting, but it really is about, um, you know, what happens when somebody, all of their darkness is just exposed and the the social media world can put pressure on their employer to disown them and uh, to push them out of their profession almost completely. In terms of conducting, what interested me was uh, how, uh, without I guess spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't seen it yet, how deeply undercut her entire career was and how far to the bottom she fell from. I mean her. The career they've built for her, this fictional career, is like it, mythical in stature. It really dwarfs uh, almost any actual conducting career that's ever taken place. That's how high they've placed her. And I feel like is the statement that it, if it were a man that had this happen, he would not have fallen so far as this. That sort of was my thought. I don't know if that was the point of the movie or not, but... There's a documentary on YouTube about um, one of the composer uh, conductors who's name checked during this movie, Antonia Brico, who was the first woman to conduct the Berlin Philharmonic in 1930, a long, long time ago. And uh, most of her career, about 40 years of it, was spent conducting an, an amateur orchestra in Denver, actually, where one of her students was Judy Collins, uh, wow. who made a documentary about her in the early 70s. It was documentaries now on YouTube. I can't remember the name of it, but if you type in Antonia Brico, you can see it. And about 10 minutes in, there's a sequence of her rehearsing this amateur orchestra, which, which is in fact a very good orchestra, and she's rehearsing it very effectively. And I thought, you know, that should be the final scene from Tar, is not her, you know, where she is at her age, you know, conducting at the bottom, but her 
at like 70 years old, still at the bottom uh, <laughs> and and uh, doing good work nowhere where no one knows who she is anymore. Like, And like, that sounds a little like uh, Ruth Gipps, who we started off with, who never really got the opportunity. At least Ruth Gipps was in academia and taught at, uh, you know, colleges of music and universities and and, you know, was out there and whereas Antonio Brico was really a piano teacher and a conductor of a, an amateur orchestra in Denver from about 1946 until the mid 70s when this documentary came out and she got a few concerts out of it, but she was already old by then. So as far as Tar, I think Kate Blanchett deserves an Oscar. I mean, anyone who makes a two hour and 40 minute film that, that and you're in every scene, um, <laughs> That that's a, a tour de force for and have to have to study the musical terms and speak some German and all that stuff. That's great. If you watch it, will you know that much about what it's like to be a conductor or about how orchestras were not really? <laughs> I don't I don't think so. Maybe the Leonard Bernstein film uh, that will come out with uh, Bradley Cooper whenever that's done and comes out that maybe. Oh, I haven't heard of that. Yeah, he's going to play Leonard Bernstein. Oh, my. And uh, that's a big, big role because you know, everything Lydia Tarr is made up to be, Leonard Bernstein was all of that. And, uh, you know, there's there's only been a few uh, really public figures in the history of um, the United States that are as, uh, you know, universally lauded for their, their brilliance and genius as, as Leonard Bernstein. So that will be interesting. But if you must see Tarr, uh, <laughs> just know that, that, that you know that megalomania is not based on nothing it's it's been known to happen amongst conductors bad behavior of course you know any any position that's so powerful uh like that where they you know really almost worship the person where their their name their face is put on billboards and name is you know often they're, they're known by one name tar toscanini you know, <laughs> whatever it is uh and and they just lose touch once one becomes a famous maestro uh, staying in touch with reality is very difficult because uh, no one will give you fair criticism. They don't. They, 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 everyone is afraid to give it to you, uh, so you, you're not connected to like what's really going on, and you don't really face the public. I mean, you know, if you're a if you co if you're the coach of the Portland Trailblazers, uh, you know the buzzer sounds. You won, you lost, and you go back to the locker room, and and then you go straight to the microphones and talk and take questions. <laughs> yeah, conductors no, don't, don't do that. Huh? There's no, no post game I can't show. Imagine, <laughs> uh, I mean, if if classical music were as big as professional athletics, the same thing would happen. We we you go you know towel off in the dressing room. It's like they're waiting, and you go out there. It's like uh, maestro. Uh, we noticed ten bars after letter B that the horn was playing the wrong transposition. Did you fail to notice this in the course of? rehearsals because you know that seems unprofessional i mean like you know that would be really something if if everyone was so versed the way they are in the rules of basketball or football that they or, that, or think they think they are yeah and, and they what the journalists really are supposed to be the ones right questions so we're we're not held accountable uh, as as much you know what people know about conducting is like it's it's like we don't know what they're doing but they must be doing something right <laughs> Uh, it's that old joke about the the bird the woman has a bird what's the bird's name his name is maestro it's like maestro what does he do it's like no one knows but <laughs> birds, uh, seem to do what he says all the time <laughs> well well david I, again many thanks for joining us today uh, it's pyp's winter concert coming up saturday i just hope the weather's a little less wintry <laughs> than what we've been going through 
it'll be great. And uh, yeah, please join us. Come hear this remarkable orchestra. It's going to turn a hundred. It's hard to believe. Uh, and they are, uh, they're having a, an incredible season. So come hear this because the next thing will be Beethoven and you won't want to miss that for sure. Oh, no, no way. <laughs> Again, thanks, David. All right. Thanks, Ken. We've been talking with David Hatner, musical director of the Portland Youth Philharmonic. David will be conducting PYP's winter concert this Saturday, March 4th, 7.30 p.m. at Portland's Arlene Schnitzer Concert Hall. The concert will also be available as a live stream. You can find out more online and purchase tickets at portlandyouthphilphil.org. This is Ken Jones for KBOO's News In-Depth.